We finished last week our series of Old Testament passages that the New Testament assumes you knew. And now we are going to start a new series and we're going to go through the book of Romans. I have never gone through the book of Romans like teaching it, or I don't think I've ever been taught the book of Romans before either. And so I'm super excited to go through it because of all of the books in the New Testament, it is probably one of the most foundational and one of the most transformative and one of the most influential throughout church history. When I was reading about it and, and like, you know, just kind of trying to get the whole scope of the thing, there were so many greats of church history that had been affected by the book of Romans. When I was, I was reading, just for example, John Wesley and Augustine were both converted upon reading the book of Romans, and John Wesley was upon reading a commentary of the book of Romans that he was converted. John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist denomination, which was a transformative thing during his time, and then obviously Augustine, one of the greats of the early church. Not only that, um, Martin Luther, obviously, is one of the most trans transformative figures in church history, where he brought about the Reformation in the 1500s. And in the Reformation, he then discovered the truths of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And as he was talking about the book of Romans, as that's such a key part of this book, he says, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament, the purest gospel, and is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word. I don't have it memorized, but Martin Luther says I should. <laughs> By heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much, and the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes, and the better it tastes. That's the book that we get to go through. And not only that, there's a guy named Frederick Gaudet, and he says, spiritual revival in the church will be connected to a deeper understanding of this book. The recovery of salvation by grace through faith as explained in the book of Romans, is one of the most transformative, foundational, and influential things that we can look at. And so I'm so excited to actually dive into this book. And so tonight I'll do a little bit more church history explaining stuff, but we'll also do discussions and things um, as we go throughout the book. But the first thing we're going to do is we're going to kind of work through this passage, and we're going to first talk about the the author about Paul, who he is. Then we're going to talk about the theme. The overall theme is the first thing that he goes into right after he introduces himself. And then we're going to see the audience, who the Romans are and where the letter is going. And then finally, we're going to see the thesis. So first it's author and then theme and then audience and thesis. That's the outline of these first 17 verses. So first the author in verse one. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So first, this is written by Paul. What all the epistles are, all of the books after the book of Acts, pretty much, those are all books that are letters, which means they're written by an individual to another person or a group of people or a church. And so this is another letter. It was written by Paul to his friends in Rome. And so Paul, who he is, is he used to be a Pharisee, which you read about the Pharisees in the, uh, in the gospel stories, where Jesus interacts with these Pharisees. They were the top-notch Jewish leaders who kept all of the law. They had all of the, like, things all figured out, and they were all doing all of that. But they ended up 
being part of the ones who persecuted Jesus and ended up contributing to him being put to death. Then after Jesus died, was buried, and he rose again, then the church started to grow and the church started to form and the Pharisees were freaking out. (laughs) The Pharisees were like, we killed this guy because we thought he was a heretic. What is going on? Now they're saying that he's been risen from the dead. They're trying to figure out how to stop this. And Paul, being one of the Pharisees, he then realizes, you know, what we need to do is we need to stamp this out. We need to get rid of this. And how we're going to do is we're going to persecute them. And he was there at the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. It says that they laid the coats, the the people who actually stoned uh, Stephen laid their coats at the feet of Paul, showing his approval and his acknowledgement of the stoning of Stephen. So the very first martyr, Paul was there, and he then, through through, through the next couple of chapters, went on a tirade to go after and persecute the Christians. On his way to Damascus, he was on his way going to go persecute them. And God came in a bright light, showed up and said, Saul, his name was Saul at that time, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you, Lord? And he's like, I'm Jesus. And he was like, what? (laughs) Like The person that was died that they said was resurrected is actually you appearing to me, you're God himself. And so he's totally wrecked. He's struck with blindness. He goes to Damascus. Someone prays for him, heals him, and he becomes one of the very pivotal leaders of the early church, authoring most of the New Testament. So that's who Paul is. That's who this man is. He He was an apostle, but he was so transformed by God himself appearing to him. The salvation that Paul received was something that God did. Paul was going the opposite direction. Paul was persecuting the church. He wanted nothing to do with God, yet God showed up to him in such a powerful, real, transformative way that literally picked him up, turned him around, and says, you're mine. You are one of my sheep, and nothing can take you out of my hand. And the life of Paul is such a living picture of the gospel that is presented here in the book of Romans, where Jesus, he sees us, even though we are far away from God, we're running away from him, we might even be persecuting him, he comes down and he pursues us, he forgives us, he loves us and says, you're mine, you're one of my sheep. Paul is a living example of the gospel that is explained in the book of Romans. And after we're first introduced to him, where Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, he immediately dives into the theme of the book. The major main theme that the book of Romans is all about. Look with me at verse 2. Which he promised, God promised, beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So Paul's the author, goes into the very foundational, pivotal, transformative theme that goes throughout the book. And the theme is is that this book, it deals with salvation, it deals with justification, it deals with sanctification, it deals with all these big theological concepts and righteousness and all these kinds of things. But, and we're going to talk about what all those things are later, (laughs) but the thing that it's always related to and the things that it's always fundamentally about is about God. Whenever he talks about the gospel, it says, for the gospel of God is what he's been set apart for. 
And then he goes into how it is accomplished through Jesus. And he explains the character and the nature of Jesus. This book, more than any other book in the New Testament, is a book about God. The word God is used in the book of Romans 153 times. That is once every 43 words. That ratio is unparalleled in the New Testament. Of all the other books in the New Testament, the book of Romans is about God. And it lifts our eyes from ourselves to focus them on God. And I think that there is no more appropriate thing for us to be doing in our current cultural environment than to lift our eyes off of ourselves and to fix our eyes upon God. Because everything around us is saying all advertisements and all like consumer things are all, believe me, I'm a businessman, so I understand it. (laughs) They're all saying, you need this, you need that, take care of your own needs, take care of yourself, and it's all about focusing on yourself, on yourself, and not just in a consumer sense um, for like products and goods and services, it's also in relationships. It's all about what we can get out of relationships and what we can get out of groups, what we can get out of environments. It's all about what we can get. So much so that um, one of the biggest hits in the last couple years um, is by a guy named, I think you say it, Love. Is that how you say it? Yeah? What was his main hit? I like me better when I'm with you. (laughs) That was his main hit. I like me better when I'm with you. All of our relationships, everyone around us is telling us, here, what you need is you need to focus on yourself and to like yourself better and to be able to use other people in order to be able to bolster your own self-esteem, self-gratitude, peace, and everything. That's the environment in which we are living in. And the book of Romans takes our eyes off of ourselves. It lifts our eyes up and says, let's look at God himself. And when we begin to look at God, we start to begin to ask the right questions. Throughout the book of Romans, there's a variety of different rhetorical questions. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Romans, he, he asks rhetorical questions in order to keep, the, keep, the, keep it moving, keep the uh, letter moving. He, asking, he starts asking rhetorical questions. And as we lift our eyes off of ourselves to God, we start asking the right questions. And what he does here is he talks about the gospel of God, but then he focuses on Jesus Christ himself. Because God has revealed himself through Jesus. If we want to know who God is like, we first look to Jesus. And what he does, look with me back um, in verse 3. It says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here we see one of the clearest parallels of the nature of who Jesus is. And we're going to camp on this a little bit because it's so cool. And it's literally at the edge of my imagination and my thoughts. So if it's not quite clear, I'm sorry. But it's so crazy. It's hard to explain. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. What is that saying? That Jesus himself is fully man. He is fully man. Meaning he in and of himself contains all of the attributes necessary to to be considered totally a man, totally a human, totally in flesh. And the book of Hebrews says, and so he's a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And we see in the Gospels that he was tired while he was on a trip, and so he sat down by a well. We see that at the tomb of one of his best friends, he wept. We see that he was rejected and betrayed. God himself was a human just like you 
and just like me. But not only that, not only was he descended from David, which we talked about Psalm 110 a couple weeks ago, which is really pivotal for this. It says, and he was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he then goes on to say is not only is he fully human, he's fully divine, he's fully God. Now, that's crazy. And many people throughout church history have tried to figure out what that means. And while I was in college and in school, they tried to explain all of it. And you can almost say it, but it's so grand and so big that it's almost something that needs to be experienced. To realize that he's fully man and that he understands us, but he's fully God. And so he's so much bigger than everything that I am. And so what I'm going to do is briefly explain up here on the board, because we need a whiteboard tonight, um, a little bit about how people have tried to explain the dual nature of Christ. And this is a little bit more theological, so if you don't like theology and this kind of stuff, I'm sorry, but I think it's fascinating. So I decided to go into it. <laughs> so first we have that Jesus is totally human, right? And I have terrible handwriting, so I'm sorry already. <laughs> first, he's totally human, but not only that, he's totally divine. And there have been a variety of different heresies along. He's a totally human, totally divine. HD. <laughs> he is an HD. <laughs> That's good. I didn't even think about that beforehand. I should have known. He's the OD HD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is totally human, totally divine. And there have been people throughout church history that have tried to deny one or the other of those. The ones who denied his divinity are typically Arians, as we ever heard of Arianism. That's a theology that denies the full divinity of Christ. That says he was, um, or actually, sorry, denies the whole, wait a minute, I'm getting confused. Yeah, Arianism. It defines, yeah, denies the full godhood of Christ. You mean like, same as Arian nation? Not that same. Okay. That's different Arianism. That's Hitler stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it sounds the same. Different, though. <laughs> like, no, not that one. <laughs> no, Arianism is actually from a guy named Arius, not the race of Arians with Hitler stuff. <laughs> he was fully Jew. <laughs> he was totally a Jew. Yeah, so Arianism, they denied the full humanity of Christ. <laughs> Were they, or full divinity of Christ. Wow, full, full divinity of Christ. Meaning that he was, um, he was basically like God. Like, he, he was pretty close. You know, it was right there. And then some people denied the full humanity of Christ. Meaning that he was totally God, but he wasn't truly a, a human. When he walked on the beach, he didn't leave any footprints. You know, like that kind of thing. Like, he, he looked, he was a very convincing, human-looking person, but he really wasn't truly a human. And, and those people who deny the humanity of Christ were not Arians. Instead, um, they were called, they followed doceticism. I think that's how you say it, not sure. But that's what they were called themselves. But then... How do you bring those two together into one person? First, these two, the two natures, the humanity and the divinity of Christ, are separated. They are two, two separate natures, but they're unified in a single person. So, 
This is what my professor did for me. He drew this little graph, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. So I decided to draw it. Um, he has two natures, but he is united in one person. Some people try to, to deny that the two natures are actually separate, and they try and mesh those two together in order to create one nature, which is actually a third thing. And that would make God some third thing, not fully human, not fully God. He would be some third thing, which if he was some third thing, he couldn't die for our sins, nor could he be our Lord because he's not truly God. So Christians were like, no, that's, that's not right. And then some people said they separated the nature so much to where there was almost two Jesuses inside of the body of Jesus, where there was like his human nature and his divine nature, and they were so separate that it was like two separate persons. Now that doesn't make sense because he has to truly be our representative and he has to truly be God. And so he actually couldn't be our mediator. He actually couldn't be our savior if those were two truly separate natures. And so that's all a little bit philosophical and a little bit random. But all that's to say is if you think that's interesting, you can talk about it with me afterwards. But um, did, you, did you think it was interesting or did you not think it was interesting? Oh, just shut it down afterwards. <laughs> um, what makes it cool and interesting, or why it's important, I guess, is um, there's a guy in 1000 AD uh, named Anselm who explained this, and um, he said that, or was talking about this, this was actually explained earlier, but he was talking about this, and um, he said that only man should die for the sins of man, but only God could die for the sins of man. Only man should, because it was our wrongdoing, it was our sin that put us in this situation, but we couldn't do it ourselves. Only God could. And so that's why this is important to have both of those things in mind. And so the book of Romans is primarily a book about God primarily a book about God's character, about God's nature, and the work that Jesus does on the cross for us in the gospel. But who was it written to? It was written to the church in Rome. So we'll keep going. Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it was written to the church in Rome. We don't know how the church in Rome was founded. Paul had never been there. He was writing to people he had never probably met but he had heard about them. And so people speculate that eventually Christians just moved into Rome at some point, started getting together, and people started to get saved. And so that's how the church in Rome started. Paul had never been there, but he writes to them and says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gifts to strengthen you. So he writes this letter to the church in Rome. The church in Rome had never met Paul, and the church in Rome was thriving. Did you notice that? Their faith was proclaimed throughout all the world. They were a thriving church. Typically, most of the time when we read one of the epistles, it's like they were super messed up. So Paul was just like, you guys, stop being dumb. It's like a lot of the epistles, it seems like. Romans, they're doing fantastic. Their faith is being proclaimed throughout all the world. People are getting saved. It's a thriving church. And Paul is writing to them. And notice that the thing that he is writing to them is all about the gospel and all about God. So often we think that once we mature in our Christian life, 
then we kind of move past the gospel and we move on into other things. But really, what we do as we grow in our Christian life is we grow deeper into the gospel. We learn it even more, we understand it even more, how it transforms everything in our entire life. And so here we get to see Paul go deep into the gospel. Have you ever been reading like 1 Corinthians 13 is an example where he says, I wanted to write to you deep things. I wanted to write to you the meat, but instead you could only savor or you could only have milk. Have you ever read that and thought, oh, I wish he could write like the deep things to some mature Christians? Book of Romans. (laughs) And so in Romans, we're going to be able to see deep things, mature things going deep into the gospel. And Paul writes this with the hope that he eventually would go see the Romans as well, go see the church in Rome. He hopes eventually to go and see them, that he may give a spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, spiritual gifts, we often think of things like prophecy or uh, miracles or healings or things like that. And later on in chapter 12, he goes into some of those. But he identifies the spiritual gift that he wants first is in verse 12. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What is one of the most fundamental spiritual gifts that you and I have? It's the mutual encouragement within the church. When we come together and we build each other up, we encourage each other. And that's what he hopes to impart to the Romans. But then it says in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he's saying, I want to come, I want to go, I want to preach the gospel, I want to meet everybody, I want to, but I haven't been able to. He's been constrained for some reason. We don't know why. We know right now that he's in Corinth where he's writing this epistle and he's on his way to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he's going to bring a bunch of money for the Jerusalem church because they were not thriving. They were, in fact, probably in the middle of a famine. So he was going to go try and help all of them out and then eventually leave from there and sail to Rome. And when he would go sail to Rome, it says later on in the book, in chapter 15, I believe, he says he then wants to go from Rome on to Spain. So this book was written to them to prepare his journey, to say, hey, I'm coming, I want to come, and I want to be there and go to Spain. And he wants Rome to be his new headquarters. Antioch had been his headquarters previously, but he wanted Rome to be his new headquarters, so that way then he could have that be as a landing base to go out to new adventures, go out to new places where the gospel hasn't been preached, and to go preach the gospel in Spain. In other words, the book of Romans is one big giant missionary support letter. Can you imagine getting that in the mail? (laughs) Like, brothers, (laughs) all this is a pretty intense missionary support letter, is what the book of Romans really is. And what he's doing is he's outlining the core doctrines that he teaches, so that way the book, so that way the church in Rome knows that he's solid, he's the Apostle Paul, and then they will be willing to support him as he goes out to then go evangelize. Spain. That was his goal. Unfortunately, the book of Acts tells us that when he went to Jerusalem to drop off the offering for the, for the church there, he was then arrested, and then he was in prison for years, and then he appealed to Caesar, and then he eventually got to Rome by appealing to Caesar, 
in the judicial court system because he was a Roman citizen. He goes there, and that is the place where he then is executed. But he does eventually make it to Rome and probably meets these Christians, but he went in chains as opposed to a free man hoping to make it to Spain. So he didn't actually make it to Spain. But that was the occasion for this, for this letter. And finally, so we first saw the author is Paul. The theme is all about God and Jesus himself. Then the audience is Rome. Then finally, the thesis is verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here in these words, we truly do see almost a summary of the entire book. The thesis, the overarching statement. If you're going to underline anything, like this is one of those that you want to underline because it's, been, it's so important and it shows us the heart of the gospel. That the gospel is the power of God. A lot of other religions, they say, here's what you need to do in order to be able to gain power. Or here's what you need to do, and you need to pull yourself up by your own power in order to be able to accomplish those things. I've been listening to a, a former Muslim who had been converted to Christianity explain the Muslim faith. And there are five different pillars in the Muslim faith that every good Muslim accomplishes, where they pray a certain prayer, they pray five times a day, they, they journey to Mecca, they give tithes, they, they do Ramadan. They have these things that they have to do, they fast during Ramadan in order to be able to obtain a right standing before God. And they have to build up the power. They have to try and do it on their own in order to be able to accomplish a right standing before God and hopefully be able to be saved. And Paul comes and he says, no, it's not that you have to try and get yourself up or accomplish these things in order to be able to gain power. Instead, the, right, the gospel itself is the power of God. It doesn't mean that we have to try and build up the power, it is the power. And when we think about what we have to do in order to be able to evangelize our world or share with our friends or to be able to try and um, make a difference in the people's lives, the thing that makes the biggest difference, the, the thing that transforms, the thing that is the power in and of itself is the gospel itself. The good news, that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you have come from. If you believe in the gospel, you are saved. If you simply believe, it's not about accomplishing anything, but simply receiving, trusting, relying, believing in God, you then receive salvation. And in verse 17, it says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or as the translation was, faith from first to last. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness here is a right standing before God. It means that you are accepted. It means that you are loved. It means that you are a part of God's family. It means that you are truly in relationship with him. And it's, it's almost like being up to specs is what, is what I've said before. Like, you know, on an assembly line, as things are going through on the assembly line, there's different things that then are um, 
considered faulty or defective that then are kicked out of the assembly line in order to be able to start from the beginning or fixed or totally scrapped. Those things are not righteous that are kicked off the line. The righteous things, the things that are up to specs, are those that keep going down the line. They're up to specs, they're righteous. But it's not simply just up to specs in a uh, manufacturing sense, but in a relational sense. It's being up to someone's evaluation. It's why it's the feeling of or the desire that we, some of us, well, we probably all have, it's like when you're about ready to go on a date with a girl that you really like, right? Or a guy that you really like. You go into the mirror and you go and you try and fix yourself up, right? You try and make sure that your hair is right. You got to get the right shirt. You got to get the right shoes. You got to get the right outfit. And then you're ready to go. So that way when you go and you meet with this person and you're on a date with this person, you then are being evaluated because you're dating and then you're up to specs. You're declared righteous, you're declared holy, you're declared to be acceptable by the other person. You're declared righteous. It's a much more relational thing. So stress. <laughs> and here's the amazing thing, is that how we, before God, have that acceptance and have that love is not by us doing something to ourselves to try and make ourselves better. It's not us trying to achieve a certain status or a certain evaluation. Instead, it is simply through faith. It's simply by believing in Him, you and I are accepted. But how strong is that acceptance? How strong is that acceptance? That's the question. It's like, okay, we're accepted. How strong is this righteousness? How strong is it? Can it really keep me? <laughs> because I know who I am, and I know that I've messed up. I know that I've done things that I regret. I know that I didn't do everything that I know that I should. So is just sitting and believing enough to really be accepted by God? Is that righteousness truly adequate? Which is why he says it is the righteousness of God. God's righteousness. Think about how righteous God is. Think about how holy God is. Think about how um, perfect God is. God is totally up to specs. <laughs> There's no flaw. There's no uh, irregularity. There's no change. He is perfect in every single possible way. There's nothing about him that can be rejected. And that righteousness has then been given to us. So now we are as righteous as God is when we believe in him. We are as righteous as God himself is in him. When we believe in him, we have the righteousness of God given to us. Where now God looks at us and he doesn't see our past mistakes. He doesn't see our past sins. He doesn't see everything wrong that we have done, are doing, or will do. Instead, he sees perfection. That is the acceptance that we have in God and in Jesus. We are in him as righteous as God is because we are robed in the righteousness of Christ, as it will say later on in the book of Romans. That truth, that we are accepted by faith, and that our acceptance is so pure 
and total and complete in Jesus. That is the truth that was able to change Martin Luther's life. Martin Luther, he was reading verse 17 in the 1500s, and when he saw the righteousness of God, it made him angry because he was like, I can't be that righteous. I can't do it. I'm a monk. I'm living in a monastery. I've done everything right, and yet still guilt racks me because I know that I'm not as righteous as God is. And he was totally smoked by this. He knew that he had nothing. But as he read and as he thought and as he prayed, the Holy Spirit made him to see that the righteousness of God here isn't the righteousness that he accomplishes, but the righteousness that is given to him by God. And I'm, if you're like me, you might be reading the Bible in this way, where when you read things like grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, when I used to read that passage, I used to think, be more gracious to people. Be more kind to people. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ means grow in the graciousness that I, that I do. I need to be more gracious. I need to be more kind. I need to be more forgiving. And, and often, a lot of us are reading the Bible in that way, where we're saying, okay, this is telling me all these things that I need to do, I need to accomplish, and I need to be able to do. And we're like Martin Luther, where we say, I just can't do it. <laughs> and all of a sudden, what the gospel does is it gives us a new lens to read the Bible. And it's the true lens to read the Bible. And it's a new way to see where now we're not looking at the righteousness of God and thinking, oh my gosh, this is condemning for me. If it's the righteousness of God that I need to accomplish, I'm done for. Now we can read it and realize the righteousness of God is a righteousness that is given to us. And it transforms everything about how we read the Bible. Now we read the Bible not saying, grow in the grace and knowledge. All right, I'm going to try and be more gracious now. Instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus God. I'm going to figure out how many ways God has been gracious to me. I'm going to grow and figure out how many ways God has been gracious to me. He's been gracious to me by giving me life, by giving me breath, by helping me to be put into the family that I'm at, putting me in the church that I'm at, in the time of history that I'm at. You can grow in all the different ways that God has been gracious. Not only that, he died on the cross for me. Like all these different things that he's done for me, I grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ by figuring out how many ways God has been gracious to me. Not, I'm going to now try and figure out how to be more gracious. And the funny thing is, is when we see how gracious God has been to us, we then become more happy, more joyful, and end up becoming more gracious. So what I tried to do at the beginning, I knew I couldn't do. But when I realized that what it means to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, what the righteousness of God is, is that we are righteous in him and we're accepted in him, that transformed me, that changed me into the kind of person that could actually then be much more gracious than I ever thought I, I, I ever could because it was all of a sudden natural. Have, when we read the Bible, we must have this lens. It transforms the way we, we read everything. When we realize it is about what God has done for us. The book of Romans is about God. The entire Bible is about what God has done for us, not what we do for him. And so as we read on our own time, I encourage you, to be reading in light of the fact that you are as righteous as God is in Christ, and the fact that he looks at you as if you had lived Jesus' perfect life in him, and all of your sin is washed away because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And when we see that that is the righteousness of God, that that is the grace of God, that transforms us and shapes us 
into the kinds of people that then walk in obedience. That's why earlier on in here, we didn't have time to touch on it, but it says it's the obedience of faith. It's the obedience that comes from faith. It's the obedience that's transformed by faith. So my heart for us tonight is that we would simply do that, that we would simply know and believe and receive the righteousness of God, knowing that we have nothing in and of ourselves, that we in and of ourselves, nothing good dwells, and that we are so sinful that God had to die for us. But God loves us so much that he was glad to do so. That's the gospel, and that's what we're going to dive into over the next few weeks going through the book of Romans. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do a couple songs of worship, and let's just worship him because he's been so gracious to us. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to worship you. Pray that you'd help us to rest in you. Thank you for your gospel and for your good news. Thank you that we are accepted and loved based upon what you have done, not upon what we have done. Pray that you would be glorified in our lives. Help us to read the Bible knowing that you have done so much for us. That it is simply by grace we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. So we pray that you would be glorified, you would be lifted up. So we commit ourselves to you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.